So we're on a beach, and in front of us is the Sea of Tiberias, also known as the Sea of Galilee. And it is late in the day. The disciples, seven of them that is, are on the beach, and they're waiting for Jesus, because that is the plan, to meet with Jesus. And while they're waiting, Peter, Peter decides that he's going to go fishing. He decides he's going to go fishing. And so he says, I'm going fishing. And the other disciples say, well, we're, we're coming too. And so together they go fishing. They go fishing throughout the night, which is actually a really good time to go fishing because that's when the fish bite. It's when you can, in the morning, offload your fresh fish into the morning market. And so it's a good time to fish and they fish, but the fishing isn't good. The fishing is terrible. Even though they have fished throughout the entire night, they don't catch one single fish. And then they hear a voice, a voice calling from the shore a hundred yards away. And this stranger says, have, have you caught any fish? which is the question that fishermen ask each other. And the disciples say, no. <laughs> which is also how fishermen respond when they haven't caught any fish. No. And Jesus says to them, although they don't know it's Jesus, well, cast, cast, cast your net on the right side of the boat. Now, I'm sure the disciples are thinking to themselves, who is this guy? And, and, and what is casting our net a few feet in the other direction possibly going to do in terms of anything. But, you know, when you've struck out, why not, right? And so they cast the net on the right side of the boat. And as soon as they do, there's a tug and a pull. And 153 large fish fill up the net, and they, can, they can't even pull it in. At which point the penny drops well, at least for John. And John says, it's Jesus. <laughs> it's Jesus. At which point Peter, who's now stripped to the waist because he's working, puts on his clothes and throws himself into the sea and begins to swim as fast as he can to Jesus. And I know that may seem weird because when you go swimming, you tend to remove clothing. But this is Jesus. And one simply does not appear before Jesus half naked. Eventually, they all get to the shore. And they're waiting for them on a charcoal, yeah, a charcoal fire uh, is breakfast. Jesus has made them breakfast. He's made them breakfast. Fish and bread. Delicious. And so they eat. And it's a good time. I'm sure it's a good time. It's a good vibe. They're eating breakfast with Jesus. Fish and bread. But then breakfast ends. And the mood changes. And things get really tense. And they get a little awkward. And, and Jesus turns his attention to, to Peter. Because that is why, after all, he's come, right? <laughs> He's come, he's come to interact with Peter. 
and he needs to. Because there are things in, in Peter's heart that need to be settled. Uh, this is not the first time that Jesus has met with Jesus, oh, with, with Peter. I think that needs to be pointed out. In Luke 24, 34, we're told that Jesus has already met with Peter. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5, we're told that when Jesus rose, he appeared first to Peter and then to the disciples. This is not their first meeting. We don't know what they talked about in that meeting. The scriptures are mercifully and discreetly silent on the issue. But my best bet is that they talked about what was on Peter's heart. And I think there was a lot of remorse and regret. I think Peter's repentant. I think he's confessed his sins. I I believe that. But there's something that hasn't been settled in Peter's heart, in his mind, his psyche. What is that thing? To understand that thing, we've got to flash back a, a few days. The night that Jesus was arrested, he said to his disciples, you're all going to deny me. And Peter was absolutely incredulous. Like, there's there's no way that's going to happen. These guys, the disciples, they may deny you, but not me. I'm made of better stuff. And Jesus said to him, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. Three times. And not long after that, in a courtyard, Peter is identified. You know, you, you know him. You were with him. You, you belong to him. And three times, three times, Peter swears up and down, I don't know him. I was never with him. I don't know the man. And then the rooster crows. He lifts his eyes. As the dawn is breaking around a charcoal fire, the only other time in John's gospel, by the way, that a charcoal fire is mentioned, his eyes meet Jesus, and he goes out and he weeps bitterly. I I think Peter's forgiven. But there's this thing. There's this thing that he feels so ashamed of. This thing that he's done. And he he just can't quite seem to get past it. And and how is he going to be of any use to Jesus if that thing is still there in in his heart? But you see, this is why Jesus is there. He knows, he knows that Peter's repentant. He knows that he he loves him. He just he he knows there's this thing, and he wants it to be done. He wants it to be settled once and for all in Peter's heart. He wants to be put to rest, put to bed, because until it is, Peter can't be of any use to Christ. How can you be of use to Christ if there's this thing that's keeping you from giving yourself full on? What about you this morning, friends? You know, I think a lot of us, like Peter, can say that there are ways that we have just, we've blown it. Yeah. There are things that we're so deeply ashamed of. There are things that we just wish never happened, but they did. And it's like they're 
shackling us and, and handcuffing us and, and, and keeping us in remorse and regret and keeping us from really moving out and being useful to Jesus. And the great news is this, that Jesus knows that and he wants to come to you as he did with Peter and restore you to usefulness. You know, whether for the first time after a major blowout or after the thousandth blowout, and we see Jesus doing that this morning. And it's fascinating, isn't it, how he actually does this? Because first, there are a couple of things that actually need to be done here for this kind of restoration to usefulness to take place. And one is this. There's a problem that needs to be addressed. There's a problem that needs to be addressed. And then there's also a calling that has to be answered. And we'll see how Christ does this with Peter and how he does it with us, really. So first, a problem that needs to be addressed. So clearly there's a problem here in Peter's heart. And I just want you to see how Jesus goes after the problem. He doesn't go after Peter's person. He goes after the problem. And he says to him, Simon, because that was Peter's other name, Peter, Simon Peter, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Now, i, I got to be honest. I don't know for sure what Jesus is referring to when he says, do you love me more than these? I wasn't there. And I've looked at the original language, and I've listened to the scholars. I still don't know. I mean, was Jesus pointing to the fish when he said, do you love me more than these? In other words, do you love me more than your career, Peter? Or maybe he was pointing to the disciples. Do you love me more than these guys? Do you love me more than relationship, Peter? Maybe. Or maybe what Jesus is doing is he's saying, Peter, do you love me more than the disciples love me? That's possible. We know that, you know, a few hours beforehand, or a few days rather, uh, Peter swore up and down that he loved Jesus more than the disciples. You know, even if they deny you, I'll never do that. Maybe. I, I just don't know. But one thing I am sure of is that Jesus is asking him one fundamental, penetrating question. And the question is this. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? And, and, and do you love me with the kind of love that will make any sacrifice possible? Do you love me in a way that you will do whatever I want, no matter what the cost, no matter how difficult, no matter how huge the sacrifice do you love me that way? Of all the questions that Jesus could have asked Peter, this is the one that Jesus asks. And it's not as though Jesus doesn't know the answer. He knows. He knows that Peter loves him. He knows that. He knows that this thing over here, this denial, was, was a moment of weakness. It was a moment when Peter wasn't doing well, but that does not characterize Peter. He knows that Peter loves him. He knows that Peter will do anything for him. But there's this thing in Peter's heart that's keeping him from fully entering into the service 
of his Lord and Savior Christ. And that's the problem. That's the problem that Jesus is addressing. Because I think he knows that the only thing that's going to eclipse and to cancel, to erase, that nagging doubt in Peter's heart are the words, I love you. I love you. And it's as though every time he is called to confess his love for Jesus, one of those denials peels off, is erased and canceled in his heart. Do you see that? And that's just the way Jesus is, friends. He has this way of going after not people, but but problems. He loves to do that. He's not one to cancel people. He cancels problems to free us. And I'll tell you this, this is not the culture that we live in. Our culture is a cancel culture. And I get, I get that people need to be held accountable for egregious things. I get that. I understand that people's platforms and their resources need to dwindle if they're being stupid and they're saying horrible, hateful things. I get that. But there's this other side to cancel culture. It's a dark side. It's a mean side. It's a shaming side. There's no redemptive arc where people just love to cancel people. And it's not new. I mean, it's a new term, but the idea is really old. You know, I think about, well, October the 14th, 2003, at Wrigley Stadium in, in, in Chicago. Chicago Cubs are playing the Florida Marlins. The Cubs are up three games to two in the National League Championship Finals. They're ahead in the game three to nothing. They're five outs. Get this, five outs from making it to the, the World Series. And they haven't won the World Series since 1908, which is a worse track record than the Leafs. But it was a good game last night. The Marlins foul the ball into the left stands right in the path of Steve Bartman. Ah, Steve Bartman. He's standing there in the stands with his green turtleneck, his headphones, his Cubs hat, and a baseball glove. The ball goes over to him. He tries to grab it like any spectator, and he gets in the way of the Cubs outfielder catching the ball. And the whole stadium is furious, furious with him. It doesn't matter that the next at bat got walked. It doesn't matter that the Cubs fumbled the next ball after that. It doesn't matter that they let eight runs in, lost the game, eventually lost the series, and were knocked out of the World Series. All that mattered in that moment was that this guy, Steve Bartman, potentially got in the way of winning the game and the series and going on to the World Series. And in that moment, you just see him sinking in his seat while thousands of people hate on him. Security guards surround him. They usher him out for his own safety while people are hurling hate on him and garbage and beer. The governor of Illinois suggested he enter into the witness protection program. 
the governor of Florida offered him asylum. Death threats followed. He had to change his phone number. And that's our world. And it's always been our world, friends. It was true then, it's true now, it was true back in the first century when a rabbi by the name of Jesus Christ who did nothing wrong was arrested on trumped-up charges, stripped naked, beaten within an inch of his life, and crucified. And while a world was seeking to cancel him, he was busy canceling the biggest problem facing humanity, which is your sin. Because it is your sin that keeps you from relationship with a holy God. And it was in love that Christ went to the cross. It was in love for love that he absorbed and extinguished the full wrath of God that is due for our sins so that you might be forgiven and in love set free to live the life that your creator has always wanted you to live. You got to love how Jesus goes after the problem. You got to love how he doesn't seek to cancel people, but problems. And friend, he wants that problem, whatever those problems are, canceled, taken care of in your life. Because they're not helping you. They're, they're, they're shackling you. And they're keeping you from everything that God wants you to be. And Jesus wants that work to happen in your life, just as he did with Peter. Some of you are here this morning, and I know that you're exploring, you know, who Jesus is, and you want to know who this Jesus is. You're kind of fascinated by him, and you should be, because there's something very compelling about Jesus. I mean, think about Peter. Here's a guy who doesn't feel so good about himself. Here's a guy who knows he's blown it, and yet for some reason he still feels he can throw himself into the sea and book it towards Jesus. He just knows that on that beach he's going to be met with love. And I ask you, who do you know like that? Who do you know who you can take your worst things, your worst offenses, your biggest failures, and you can still show up in front of his presence and know that he's there and he's waiting for you, even with breakfast? Delicious. That's far out. You think about that. And for those of you this morning who, you know, got that thing. And you just can't seem to get past that thing. You've got real questions about your usefulness. <laughs> and I get that. Jesus wants to put those things to rest. And he wants you to put them to rest. And they need to get to rest. And maybe the question that Jesus is asking you this morning is the same question that he's asked Peter. Do you love me? Do you love me? I mean, when it is all said and done, isn't that what really characterizes you and not the thing? And could it be that it is good for you to say 
to him today, I do love you. And to hear those words and to say that is actually true. That is characteristic of me. I'm someone who's been forgiven. I'm somebody who's messed up. I've blown it. But at the end of the day, those things don't define me. They don't characterize me. What's really in my heart is this. Jesus, I love you. I love you. I love you. And you see if that doesn't just eclipse and erase in your heart the things that are holding you down and keeping you back this morning. It's amazing. Jesus just goes right head on into that problem. He will. He wants to. And you need to open yourself up and just let him do that work. Don't be afraid. It's going to be good. It's going to be okay. It's going to be freeing. But that's where he wants to go. But he doesn't want to stop there. He doesn't want to just stop there either. It's this. He's not just wanting to deal with the problem. He also wants to call you to something. And it's a calling that he wants you to hear, listen, and follow. Three times, three times Jesus confesses his love. Sorry, Peter confesses his love for Peter. And three times, and this is astounding, Jesus says to him, Peter, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. It's as though nothing has happened, right? Nothing has happened. The calling is still there on Peter's life. In fact, Jesus goes on to say this. Hey, you know what, Peter? I, 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 believe, I believe you love me. And I'm telling you, a day is coming, and here it is. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. And then John adds this parenthesis. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said, Jesus said to him, follow me. We know from God's word, we also know from historic literature that Peter himself was, in fact, crucified in Rome. Some say there's a tradition that he was crucified upside down because he refused to be crucified the same way that Jesus did because he didn't feel worthy. I wasn't able to find that. It may be true. I'm not saying it's not. I just haven't found it. But one thing is for sure. Jesus is saying to Peter, your love for me is going to cost you. You're going to die. You're going to die. Now, I don't know how you feel about that, but I wouldn't want to know how I'm going to die. If I knew that ahead of time, I would just be living with that haunting image in my mind all along. I can't imagine this felt good for Peter. And yet there's something really cool and encouraging about this. Because what he's saying to Peter is this, a day is coming when you're older and you're going to have to face a choice. You will deny me or you will love me. And Peter, you're not going to deny me. You're going to love me. And that love for me and this world is going to take your life. You're going to be crucified. You're going to die for me. And then Jesus says to him, follow me. Probably on the same shore that, that Jesus first uttered those words to Peter. Words 
that initialized the beginning of a discipleship relationship with Jesus because those were the words in the day that did that? Follow me. And Peter did. Right to his death. Loved him that much. Loved him more than life. Loved him more than his own safety. Loved him. And that love compelled him to sacrifice everything for the one who gave everything for him. I don't think that that calling is identical with God's calling in your life in the sense that that was the Apostle Peter. But the calling is still the same. Christ still calls you to follow him. And isn't that crazy? After all that we've, been, we've got ourselves up to, right, the mess that we have made, those things, that thing, he still says, follow me. Isn't that incredible? And he does. But it's going to cost you. What does that mean for you this morning? Well, it means that he's going to lead you somewhere and it's whatever he puts in front of you is the thing he wants you to tackle. For some of you, it's going to mean family, uh, parents. Some of you are at a time in your lives when it's going to require you to give yourself to your parents and to family. Aging parents need that. And it's going to be hard. For some of you, it's your friends, it's your coworkers, it's, it's whoever he puts in front of you. Who has he put in front of you? You know, in some ways, it's not this huge, you know, mystical thing. It's very practical on the ground. It's like, who, where is he leading you? Where is he asking you to follow him? What, who has he put right in front of you? It's going to cost you. You should know that. It's going to cost you. There will be sacrifice. And what about you, Grace West? We, we, we are now a church. We're now a church, officially a church. We're a mission church. And I believe that that calling that Christ gave to Peter and to all of you individually is a call that he's giving to us as a church, Grace West. And if we love Christ more than anything else in this world, it will come at a cost. It will cost you your time. It'll cost you your energy. It'll cost you your opportunities. It'll cost you your resources. It will. When Christ calls a person to himself, Bonhoeffer said, he calls that person to die. What is going to animate us? What's going to propel us? What's going to enable us to make that sacrifice? Is it not the love of the one who gave his life for us? Let me speak more specifically to the leaders in our church, the upcoming leaders in our church. Those of you who are in charge of groups or in charge of ministries or who are seeking to become leaders, elders in our church or who are already pastors. God gives power and authority to people. 
that power and authority is to be stewarded and used to serve and help people see Jesus Christ. It is not for your name to be built up. It is for the name of Jesus Christ to be built up. And so we serve and we sacrifice to that end. Don't we? And friends, isn't it the love of Christ that compels us to do that this morning and in our church? That has got to be the thing. It can only be that thing because only that thing can deal with the problem in your life that's keeping you from being of greater usefulness to Jesus Christ. And Jesus wants you to be useful. And you will be. As the love of God constrains you. As that is the dominating motif and the cry of your heart, it will free you up to make whatever sacrifice is needed for the sake of the West End and for Christ to be known in the West End and in this place. And isn't he worth it? Peter thought so. It took him to a cross and to glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this story is for us. I feel in many ways as much as it was for Peter. And thank you that you meet us on the beach, whatever that beach is, and that your heart for us is to just restore us to usefulness when we've blown it. And Father, we know we have. You know we have. We all sin, and we sin in many ways, your word says. And we don't want to live out of lies. We don't want to live out of defeat. We don't want to live out of the accusations of our conscience and the whisperings of the dark one. We, we need these things when they're confessed to be put to bed. Help us, Lord, to put them there, compelled by your love, strengthened by your grace. And then, Lord, use us in an unfettered way. Father, help our hearts to burn and to burn with a desire to see Christ elevated in people's lives, in in everyday interactions, and in this West End where you've located many of us. And Lord, do that so that your name would be hallowed and lifted up, we pray. Do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.